The nail in the coffin! Welcome to the Nail in the Coffin. I am Tom. He is Travis. It is Tuesday night. Trev, uh, it's been a while. How you been, man? Doing good, buddy. Doing pretty, doing pretty well. Uh, back on the back state side, so feeling good. That's good. Welcome, uh, welcome back to the uh, the uh, lower forty-eight here. We missed you. Yeah, and, I don't uh, think that's true, but okay. I appreciate <laughs> I had to try to sell it anyway. Yeah, it's valid. You're a terrible salesman, but okay. I won't quit my day job. <laughs> we're <laughs> we're also joined by uh, Jeff Namina. Nam, how are you, sir? Doing well. I'm doing well, and I've I think I've fully recovered from both the uh, NBA lottery results and my hangover from watching the NBA lottery results. So I think I'm, I think I'm in a good place now. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but did you do like some sort of a uh, a meetup for the lottery? Yeah, I went up to uh, Marriott in Lakewood. Had a bunch of the, the the Cavs Twitter folk come out, and all of us weirdos watched it together. Well, uh, probably no better place to start than right there. Uh, it was a week ago tonight. We found out the Cavs are going to be drafting fifth in the uh, NBA draft coming up here next month. And statistically, I guess that was the most likely outcome for them, which seems highly messed up considering they finished with the second worst record in the league and the second best odds, or I guess they were tied for the best odds to, uh, to win the thing. But uh, what was the reaction like in the room when the, uh, the envelope came up and uh, the Cavs logo came out and we, uh, we saw our fate sealed. Uh, I would say everyone was still freaking out so crazy about the Lakers jumping up that it almost like pale. It almost, muted the response to the Cavs pick because we were all, I think I said the word rigged about 7,000 times in that four minute commercial break between uh, we, you know, when they, when we knew the Lakers were jumping up and when we actually got the results. But when the Cavs came up, it was, there's a lot of cheering. We weren't sixth and fifth. I'd say there was a lot of disappointment. People tried to initially talk themselves into it, but it was, it was a tough sell. <laughs> Trev, you were not watching it live, right? You, you, because you were uh, overseas, you didn't. Uh, you found out what the next morning then? Yeah, so it happened around what eight p.m. Eastern right. time. Yeah, eight or nine. So yeah, I was uh, I was seven hours ahead. I was in Tel Aviv, and it was three a.m. there. So um, originally, I, don't know, I had <laughs> I had these grand visions of how I was going to manage this time difference. I was going to get up at four a.m. to watch Game of Thrones when it happened, and all these other things, nothing actually came to fruition. I was a zombie when I was over there. But so I was planning originally, like, I'm going to watch it live. And then I was like, that's a terrible idea. Um, so yeah, I woke, I woke up at what would have been, you know, about midnight, between 11 a.m. or 11 p.m. and midnight Eastern time and just pulled it up on ESPN. What happened in the lottery, right? Didn't actually watch anything occur, just saw the results. And I tell you, it's probably the better way to do it when you're going to be disappointed. Um, if it was one of the ones a few years ago where the where they got the first pick, I probably would have been like, oh, damn, I should have stayed up and watched it. But um, 
So yeah, I woke up and saw that they were they were drafting fifth. I didn't see how it happened, and obviously didn't see any of the uh, the suspense around when when the Pelicans pick should have come up or when the Lakers pick should have come up um, that I would have seen in the past. So it's an interesting way to do it, but ultimately, like you said, it, it kind of seems like that was I don't know, maybe not what anyone expected, but the most statistically likely outcome. So here we are. Now, let me ask you, what, what do you think about this new lottery and the new odds? Um, there was a lot of talk about it going in and I have some strong feelings on it, but I'm kind of curious now. I mean, how you feel about it and whether your perception of things is skewed at all by, uh, how the Cavs, uh, shook out in uh, in their pick shook out uh, with this first time through. Oh, let, let's be clear. I'm absolutely bitter. <laughs> I am a bitter Cavs fan through and through. I'm not going to try to pretend like that's not going to color my, my opinion of it, but I hate it. I, I just don't think there's very many ways for a lot of teams in the league to improve and the draft is the only one. So taking that away, I think you're going to have a bunch of franchises that just kill their fan base. If you're, if you're really bad for three or four straight years and you keep ending up fourth or fifth in the draft, I just don't know how you keep a fan base going. Like if the Cavs have another 21 season and come out with the fifth or sixth pick again, it's going to be really hard to keep people interested in what's going on. So I hate it for that aspect that I think it's really bad for just the ability to build teams. I hate that if you were a non kind of glamour team that wasn't going to participate in free agency doing the Oklahoma city, Philadelphia, Cleveland tank and try to get multiple top pick method is pretty much gone now. So there's really no to try to get multiple stars. It's really all about luck now. You just like the whole play is be bad enough to be in the top 10 of the lottery odds and hope you jump up. I hate, I hate that it's just all luck now. I hate that they've taken away one of the only avenues for, for a lot of these teams to get better. And it just, it, it's hard to see a really good path for the Cavs to be actual contenders in a league where you have to have three all-stars pretty much to be a a legit contender. It's hard to see how the Cavs can ever get to that level with these new odds to me. It feels like this is just, Tino, real quick, real quick, real quick. Can we, can we recap what exactly changed? Now, obviously the the top three had the exact same odds. How from, from, I don't know. When I hear Mel talk here, it's hard for me to grasp. If you're a bitter Cavs fan, weren't the Cavs odds better at getting one no. of the top picks? So it went from the top pick, uh, the worst record had like a 25% chance and couldn't drop worse than fourth. Uh, the second pick was like 19% and couldn't drop worse than fifth. They changed it so all the, the worst three records all only had a 14% chance and had, a, I think, a 52% chance of, like the Cavs had, like I think, a 52% chance of picking fifth or sixth in the draft, whereas before they wouldn't have even been able to pick worse than fifth at all, and it would have been like a, I can't remember, a 20% chance or something like that. So statistically, they've made it so that the worst teams have a better than 50% chance to pick in the worst slot or the second worst slot of where they landed. Yeah, the uh, okay. the... the- the, the oversimplified version of it is that they flatten the odds out um, among the teams that are in the lottery significantly from last year. And on top of that, they now do the lottery for the first four positions 
instead of three. It used to just be the top three that got drawn and the remaining team starting at number four on down would just fall in place based on record. And now it's four, four teams that get drafted. So uh, that um, also kind of made things more difficult. And okay. So for, for the Lakers and the Pelicans specifically, obviously they're, they were among the lottery teams. They had, worse uh, I think the the Lakers came in I think with the 11th worst or yeah they, they were like the 11th uh team okay uh, this might be putting you guys on the spot and I don't know if either one of you will know the answer here what would the odds for the Lakers have been or I, maybe the Pelicans is a better example what would the Pelicans odds have been previously and what were they this year I'm trying and to I remember what yeah, again, might be putting you on the spot I, I don't know how much it shifted exactly to help those those lower teams right um because i think we all went through the season and maybe you guys were a little more on top of it than i was and and the average fan was but the feeling i got all going all through the season was as long as you were in that top three you were okay right and and it it felt like in general we we i'm throwing the air quotes up here um we thought that it was fine to be two or three. Their odds were better if they were two or three than they were previously. And maybe that was part of the messaging from the NBA or, or whatever it is, right? But it, it kind of felt like we, we felt like as long as we were in the top three, we were fine. And, and I think, obviously that, that turns out to be maybe different than what was actually in place. Yeah, so the reason we wanted to be in the top three was because Previously, the first, second, and third had descending odds of to do it. Now the top three will have the same odds to get the top pick. So it didn't really matter if we finished with the worst versus the second versus the third worst. Um, we'd have the same odds at the top pick. All it meant was you could fall one pick further. So it's not that we had better odds than we used to. It's that they flattened the top three are all equal in terms of odds for the top pick. So it doesn't matter jockeying for those positions quite as much because you have the same odds at the top pick. But they've changed it so now you can drop much further than you used to be able to. So if you don't get that top pick, you can drop a lot later in the lottery than what you used to be able to. Now, let me ask you this. Was this whole thing and this whole lottery reform just a a gross overreaction to the Sixers and the process that that they made, you know, kind of infamous and openly embracing tanking? Yeah, and I think that people – so, I mean, clearly what they were doing was tanking. But I think people also started using tanking to just mean bad teams. A lot of people were saying that the Cavs, that, that you know, this solved tanking, I was going to get rid of tanking. And, and I don't really understand why. Like, it, it, the Cavs are still going to try to, you know, probably keep their pick. And I don't think anybody was blatantly tanking in the way that Philadelphia was that was an actual problem. I don't know what a lot of these teams are supposed to be doing differently. If, if you're saying that bad teams can't get talent, then they're not necessarily tanking as much as they are not good and have to use the lottery to get I was going to gonna say, some players. teams just suck. <laughs> Let's right. put it out there. There seems to be this idea that if you're bad, you're tanking. And, like, let me tell you something. <laughs> That's not always how it works. Not all these teams are tanking. So I, I just – I think, yes, it was a pretty big overreaction to – some pretty very specific situations and the lottery itself was kind of there to protect against that. You know, no other sport has a lottery. The NBA right. is pretending like this is some massive problem. Like the lottery was already there to fix that. And 
you know, the Cavs have won it from what eighth and ninth, the the Wiggins and the Kyrie, right. Uh, so you know, it was working. You know, it was already making it so that it wasn't just the teams at the with the absolute worst record. So I, I think they just it was a major overreaction. I think I think a lot of times the online conversations drive a lot of what the NBA does, and for whatever reason, this was a big deal to a lot of a lot of the online community for the NBA to really, yeah, really just, push for it. I just felt like the Sixers in particular kind of caused this because they, you know, they, they made it socially acceptable to be bad on purpose. And they, they put a fancy term on it and called it the process. And suddenly in a way it became, they got buy-in from their fan base. And, you know, you kind of, I, I applaud them for getting creative. Cause like you were just saying a few minutes ago, when you've got a team that is, you know, really bad for a number of years, it's hard to keep people in your fan base engaged. And, you know, they clearly communicated a vision of what they were doing and, and getting people to think about the long term. And and I think the league looked at that and basically said, we can't make it okay for teams to like be so open ab- about trying to lose games. And unfortunately, like to your point, the collateral damage in that is like somebody has to be the worst team. So even if, you know, those bottom couple of teams, um, you know, they they very well. Like I, I don't think the Cavs. I mean, the, the one thing you can say with the Cavs, I think from this year, I don't know that they were ever out and out tanking, but they definitely, I think, did a very good job of managing certain guys' minutes, especially around injuries. Like it felt like Tristan Thompson probably could have come back almost a month before he did. Like there was just that weird point in, I want to say like February where, you know, we stopped getting updates on him and he was like his original timeline for return um, had long since passed. And I think we even talked about it on here. Like if, was there some sort of a gentleman's agreement between the, uh, the, the Cavs and the, you know, three people that are left covering them to, just stop asking about it for a while. But um, <laughs> other than I, that, I know, along those lines, I, that's what the Lakers and Pelicans did, and they were just rewarded for it. I mean, Anthony right. Davis and LeBron were healthy scratches or, or you know, load management for the entire back half of the of the year, and they were rewarded with top four picks or the top overall pick. And I think that's the thing that is going to happen: is that the bad teams are still going to be bad because you're making it so they can't get talent. So you haven't solved the problem of having bad teams. But now you're going to have teams who are maybe fringe lottery teams or okay teams who are going to think about, well, does it make more sense for us to sell out, blow out our cap sheet, spend a bunch of money to maybe be an eighth seed and get swept in the first round? Or does it make sense for us to drop off and go into the lottery and try to get another top pick? Because I'll tell you what, if I was a Pistons fan right now and I saw what happened with the Pelicans or Lakers, I'd be saying, well, why did my GM do that? Why did we waste time making the HC just to get swept. Why, why couldn't we try to, you know, get back in the lottery? So in other words, you're saying it basically incentivized more teams to tank instead of less. I, I think, I, I think the, the flawed premise of this was that all bad teams are tanking. Now they've created it. So there's still all those bad teams, but yeah, now there's a reason for those mediocre teams to, to tank. It's kind of like in baseball. If you want to be a buyer or seller, some teams could probably sell out and try to make the playoffs, but at some point there's, you know, cost benefit there and makes more sense to sell off. I would agree. Um, well, we've got, uh, the fifth pick. We'll, uh, we'll get into the draft in a second. I want to shift gears here 
uh, just for a second. The Cavs introduced John Beeline today as the head coach. That was the other big news that came out of last week. Uh, day before the the, uh, the lottery, I was actually really surprised by the timing of that. And I guess if you're thinking big picture, you can't hinge everything that you're doing on on one draft pick. But it certainly felt to me like the Cavs' job would look a lot different depending on where they showed up in the lottery. And I was surprised someone would agree to a job literally, what, not even 36 hours before we found out where they were drafting. And I would say specifically for Beeline, because the rest of the guys that they were interviewing don't seem to be, you know, fighting for other jobs or or anything too much. There's not a ton of great jobs out there right now. So, you know, they probably had their pick of the litter there no matter what. But Beeline's a guy who had the reputation and the the resume to probably kind of hold out for a good job. Um, So him specifically wanting to agree then is almost more surprising than anything. And I was just further adding to the shock value of that. I was kind of paying attention to this hiring process from the day that the regular season ended and we started seeing some of the names popping up and it felt like the Cavs went through a really long list of candidates through the first round of interviews and pretty much all of them, it felt like were in the same mold. They were up and coming, younger assistants, already in the NBA and ready for their first head coaching job. And all of a sudden, I was coming out of a doctor's appointment last Monday morning, and I see on my phone the Cavs just agreed to a five-year deal with John Beeline. I never even heard that they were interviewing him or that he was even under consideration. And he's completely – I mean, this is a guy who's 66, never been an assistant on any level, and um, has never worked in the NBA. So it was like completely outside the box out of everything else that – they were doing in their search and i don't know about you but i was floored by that yeah and kudos to the Cavs for keeping it quiet um it helps that we literally i don't think have a beat writer in town that covers the Cavs. <laughs> so it's not that hard probably to keep things quiet but you know that did come out later where he said that he withdrew from the pistons job because stuff leaked and he just wasn't comfortable with it so you know kudos to them it it, it isn't a huge deal but this is an organization that you kind of got to celebrate the, the little wins because this isn't always the case with them, right? That they would be able to to, to execute a, search, a coaching search and not have it leak. Um, the other side of it being, of course, that it feels a lot like Dan Gilbert just heard we we're doing a Michigan guy and jumped in and offered him a bunch of money. <laughs> so I don't yeah. know how much credit they deserve on that. Um, but yeah, this came out of nowhere. I had absolutely – when. I, I always love the Woj, you know, the Woj bombs that, that hit my phone and I'm just like – of course, the most random ones are always the Cavs, and, and, and you just never know what to think. You know, when you see Cleveland come up as one of the first words in a Woj tweet. Yeah, I'm already bracing for draft night with that because you know what's coming. Um, Trav, what was your initial reaction to the John Beeline hiring? And now that we've had a week to digest it, are you still singing the same tune, or um, have your views changed at all? No, I think I kind of feel the same way, um, maybe a little less. Um, extreme, I guess, maybe not as quite as uh, spontaneous in my feeling, but it just, it's sort of a confusing hire. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Um, He's clearly, and truthfully, if you told me he was only 66, I would have said you're full of shit um, (laughs) before I looked it up and saw it. Um, 
I I thought this was a guy who maybe only had a couple years left coaching in general. Um, so to see that he's deciding now, hey, I'm gonna I've only ever really done college. I'm gonna try the NBA, and that's my new thing. It just it made no sense. He's a guy that I kind of thought. Michigan was a destination job for him. I thought he was done moving. He was, he's done, he's obviously done incredible things there. He's built um, a hell of a program. Obviously Michigan's had good history and everything, but he has really ramped it up and turned it into a bit of a powerhouse. And the idea that he just is just out of nowhere, like his name really never even seemed to float around much in NBA circles. And in the few times that maybe I heard it, Previously, I thought, nah, whatever. It's just it's just another name that's being thrown out there because he's had success in college. But um, I don't know. I guess maybe it's it, maybe it's a good fit because they're, obviously they're a pretty young team, right? They don't have super high expectations right now. They have guys who um, they need to develop into into more NBA ready players and things like that. Um, so I don't know. It's 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 a weird fit. It just doesn't make. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but I'm also not super upset about it, I guess. there was, It's unlikely that there was really anybody out there that I was really going to get that excited about to begin with, though. Well, I, I will say that leading up to that hire, there were a lot of other jobs that got filled around the league, and there was nobody else that got hired that made me jump up and say, like, ah, damn, I wish the Cavs could have gotten that guy. Um, so... From that perspective, I guess it was kind of reassuring. And I think for me, once the initial shock of this wore off, I the, the, the initial returns on this had me kind of worried because the first things I heard were, you know, he interviewed with Dan Gilbert and the rest of the front office at the time that weekend before was, uh, I think, in Denver interviewing a bunch of other NBA assistants. And then this deal got done. With, with like Kobe Altman and the rest of the front office, not even in town. And it very much kind of reeked to that whole, uh, yeah, this is just Dan Gilbert uh, going rogue on his own organization again. Um, but then it, uh, I think we got a little bit more backstory and it sounded like uh, Kobe had talked to him a little bit more earlier in the week and they had, they had done the first round of interviews with him. And, uh, and, and I think they just did a good job of keeping that under wraps. Um, so I need to slightly modify, actually, now that I remember, I need to slightly modify my initial reaction, because truth be told, it was, oh, hey, yeah, go Bucks, fuck Michigan. Now how does this <laughs> Well, and funny uh, you say that, because, like, that was part of my initial reaction. It's like, you know, Dan Gilbert's a well-known Michigan State guy, and it's like, oh, good, he's, uh, I, I, he apparently uh, is, you know, just trying to torpedo his, uh, his alma mater's in-state rival. And he's using the Cavs to do it, so that's that's a hell of a right. effort. If I right can't there. get Izzo, I might as well uh, might as well take out Michigan and he's in the process, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and can Go I ahead. rant on the Gilbert thing for a second? Go ahead. I I think I, yeah, I saw a lot of people like wringing their hands, like "Oh, Gilbert does it again" and all that. And I think we have to be beyond the point where that's like surprising or frustrating. Like Dan Gilbert's gonna meddle in everything we do. Like the draft pick is gonna be. 90% who he wants and the coach was always going to be 90% who he wants. So it's really just about like, did Dan Gilbert screw up the times that he meddled, right? He, like, it's not whether or not he's going to, like we know that he's going to have a big influence. Kobe Altman was never going to run this by himself. So, you know, it's just more, all right, well, 
is this a bad Dan Gilbert choice? Because just because Dan Gilbert did it doesn't mean it's necessarily bad. And I, I, I like I saw a lot of people wringing their hands about the process. It's like, well, this is the process when Dan Gilbert's your owner. Like, this is just how things are going to go. And I don't know. Does it seem like he got this one that wrong? Were the other guys that good of, a, of coaches? You know, I, I think a, a young I think, guy. Is, I think he he could have meddled and gotten it a lot worse. Yes, yes. I think that's that's exactly where I am. Like. If your owner is going to step in and kind of hire a coach while your GM is half a country away, it, it could go a lot worse than this, right? I think, yeah. And I think my initial concerns with Beeline were, you know, as I'd said before, he's 66 years old and he'd never worked in the NBA before. Um, but kind of the more that I've read up on him, I'm feeling a lot better about the hire, to be honest, because, I mean, you could go back to when. Ty Lue, you know, left back in, what was that, the first week in November, I think. And I think, Trey, if you and I were even talking at the time, and and what I said back then was, I want somebody, whoever the Cavs hire, and I don't have a name in mind at that point, I, I said, you know, I want somebody who's forward-thinking, um, can embrace, you know, advanced statistics and, and things like that, and I want somebody that's going to work in lockstep with whatever vision the front office has. Cause you can remember it. Part of what it led to Tyson doing was, you know, he kind of wanted to go one way with the rotation and the front office kind of changed gears and they were button heads. And I just wanted everybody on the same page and, you know, just kind of tying into that. I think it was David Zavak who, you know, we've had on here a couple times talking calves had a great line. Uh, at the beginning of the season saying at some point the Cavs are going to have to form some sort of a positive identity as an organization that is not having anything to do with LeBron James. And it's something they really haven't had in 20 years. I mean, when you think about it, I mean, they were bad for a number of years before LeBron came in. Um, And I just, I, I feel like, what we're hearing about Beeline is he's a really strong culture guy and he's really good with player development, you know, and I think there's, there's proof of that when you look at, you know, the, you know, for whatever the rankings are worth of, you know, recruits coming out of high school versus, you know, how many guys he's gotten drafted into the first round in the NBA. He certainly has a track record of coaching guys up. Um, And it just feels like the Cavs as a whole, are trying to build that, you know, culture driven, you know, work hard identity. I, I don't know. I guess you say they want to be a bunch of tryhards. Um, but I, I can see how his pedigree and, and his mindset and what he's about and what he was about at Michigan could fit into what their vision is as an organization. Maybe that's just projecting and wishful thinking on my part, but that's the story I'm going to until they tip off in uh, October next year, I guess. Yeah, and that's all we have, right, is, is, you know, hopes. We're always going to just hope that's the best case, but I think you're absolutely right that we saw it with Brooklyn and we saw it with Philadelphia. When they were when they were bad, they still were able to build a culture, and in the absence of talent, all you can do is build a culture. And, you know, we have, we're absent talent right now, so we might as well try to build that side of things. Like you said, he, he seems forward-thinking. He seems, seems to run modern basketball sets and getting everyone on the team and everyone in the organization just to have the muscle memory of of running that kind of offense and thinking 
about basketball that way is is all we can really do until we have actual building blocks. Like I'm sure all of us, you know, sort of like Colin Sexton, but I don't think he's the best or second best player on a on a really good team. So you know, in terms of where we are right now, we we don't really have much. And so if he can come in and build a culture, that's better than anything else we have right now. Yeah, but I was going to say, like, I don't think it's an accident that they, you know, chose Colin Sexton with the eighth pick in the draft. I mean, they're probably looking at that position, like, how many superstars are you getting at eight? You know, do you mm-hmm. do we roll the dice on someone with the higher upside, or do we get somebody who's going to be a gym rat? You know, I think there was even stories today. He was in there at uh, the Cavs practice facility working out at six o'clock this morning, um, and you know his most redeeming quality I think has been that he's an absolute workhorse and, and, you know, he's super motivated and he, and he's going to, you know, try to, you know, work his ass off to get better. And, and I think, you know, you look at that draft pick, you look at trying to bring, you know, like Channing Fry back. He's a super likable guy, a professional, you know, throwing a bag of money at Kevin love to stick around another guy, high character guy, professional, um, you know, it, it seems like there was a lot more thought put into that part of the equation for them building and then I feel like in the first post-LeBron era. Um, whether that pans out or not, I don't know. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I do think that's that's part of it. And, you know, the other thing I was saying was, like, just being forward-looking, I thought it was really cool that Beeline was even saying today in his press conference that, you know, he's already looking at some of the data that the Cavs have that, you know, are kind of things that they didn't have at Michigan. And he's like open to it and really excited about it and understands that like, you can't go too far with it. You got it. I mean, there's a human element involved with it here, but you know, honestly, that's like not something I would expect from a guy who's been coaching college players for 40 years. And is at this point in his career, you kind of figure that, somebody at that stage kind of is like, you know, this is who I am. This is how I'm going to do things. And um, he does seem like he's willing to be very adaptable, which is encouraging to me. Yeah. And he's had success. He has no reason to question his methods. So it's impressive that if, if, you know, if it isn't just lip service and if he's willing to listen to that, it's, it's an impressive character trait by him to, to do that. And I, and I just want to say real quick, I hope that the whole, you know, they really hyped up Colin Sexton's work ethic. I don't know if you remember when he was drafted, it was like the only good thing that they had to say about him. And I hope that that's real. And I hope that, like you said, that the Channing Fry and Kevin Love, I hope, I hope that that's not us projecting that on them. It feels like something that's a really big focus, but I think this next draft pick is going to tell us a lot about that. Um, sometimes I feel like when the Indians do things, we start thinking that it all was part of a master plan and then you kind of see it unravel. And, I, and I'm hoping this isn't one of those kind of situations. I hope this is real that the team focuses on that. And I, I really am excited to see what they do with that fifth pick. Cause I think it's going to tell us a lot about, about that. That's a very nice segue there. You should do this more. Yeah. I was going <laughs> to <I was, laughs> slide right into it. So where do, where do we think they're going with the fifth pick? And that was pretty much me like subtweeting Cam Reddish, I think for that. Yeah, th- well, well, go ahead. Speak on it then, because that, that seems to be the thing. Cam Reddish uh, has, has got the physical tools, but I feel like that's a huge knock on him that we hear that he doesn't really love basketball and he doesn't really have the motor of some of these other guys in the mix in that, uh, you know, top five or six range. Yeah, and I hate being – I hate trying to figure those things out about guys. You know, you don't know what guys' motivations are. You don't know if they're just not 
as vocal as others. You don't know how much they love the game. He was on a team with R.J. Barrett and, and Zion, and it, you know, he might have just known that it wasn't his place to do a lot of that. And, and so I, I don't want to speak for him or put that on him, but if that is truly the knock on him, then it would fly in the face of everything else that they've kind of been setting up. So I, I that's kind of where I'm interested to see if they are willing to go. That would also just be an upside shot for them. You know, he seems to be the highest upside of anybody who's going to be available. So it would be a sign that they're going to keep swinging for the fences rather than trying to build a base. You know, DeAndre Hunter is probably going to be there. He looks like a for sure really good NBA player who probably is never going to be a great NBA player. And the the difference between those two seems very night and day in terms of uh, of what the ceiling and floor are for each of them. So I, I just think it's going to be really fascinating to kind of get inside the Cavs' heads there and understand what their goals are going to be. I don't watch as much college ball. What do you guys think of Cam Reddish? I mean, I, I didn't see a ton of Duke during the regular season. A little bit. I, I would say probably other than my alma mater. That was probably the team I did see the most of. Um, I don't remember him jumping out to me, but I, it's kind of hard to get really noticed when you're playing alongside Zion, to be fair to him. so um, And RJ. I mean, right. my experience, my, I don't know, my opinion every time I watch Duke was Zion's a freak. The other, everyone else, and this, I don't know, this might sound ridiculous because Coach K is so widely revered as this, this, you know, legendary guy who is great at coaching everyone up. It felt like none of them really knew how to play basketball. Like they weren't, if, if they weren't all, if everything wasn't going great, they kind of just fell apart, right? They didn't know. They're, what they were what they were individually supposed to be doing. They didn't really know how to play that well as a team. They were super talented. Um, but they weren't they just didn't they didn't click. They didn't really know what they were doing when on the, they were on the floor. They all kind of tended to revert into sort of one on one mode, um, which when there's five of you doesn't work that great. Um, so it's hard to really tell. I think it's hard to evaluate Cam Radish and Personally, I think it's even, I don't think it's that easy to evaluate RJ Barrett because he had moments like that too where you'd watch tight games and, and he'd just make some mind boggling decisions and you're like, what is this guy doing? But um, I don't know. I'm sort of at the point where I think I'm with you and I'm like, I don't want to hold a lot of this stuff against him because of the team he was on. He had all these guys that were super talented and maybe he wasn't being asked to do these things. Um, so I'm not necessarily going to hold against him the fact that he wasn't super aggressive and maybe he didn't show this like killer instinct that we all want to see. But um, I don't know. I think it, it, it got really hard to evaluate guys on Duke this year just because of the way that um, the way that they played. All right. Well, now let me ask you this. Do you think the Cavs stay at five and just take who's available there? Or do you think there's a chance – they maybe try to move up to three even and or possibly trade down and, and go for quantity over quality. Yeah, it seems like there's been some noise about that. I think I think Alex Kennedy was or was it Skyler? I can't remember who who Kevin Scott Kyler or whoever it was. Um or Steve Kyler, is that his name? That was reporting that and Spencer Davies locally was kind of saying that the Cavs are obsessed with Barrett. I, I think there's definitely a scenario. I, I think having the twenty sixth pick and having JR's kind of unique deal. He's got that deal that was signed into the old CBA. So he, his contract is worth 15 million or something can be traded for 15 million, but there's only three and a half guaranteed. So a team could trade $15 million and then 
cut, cut JR and only have to spend 3.5 instead. So that's a big asset. I wonder if they could pair 26 and and JR's contract and get another first rounder that would give them the ammo to move up. I don't know. I, and who, you know, does New York want to move back? They need talent. So yeah, they're going to be looking there. That was the one scenario. Was it Sam Amico? I think that, but I swear I saw some uh, New York writers saying this as well that the uh, Knicks are interested in Cam Reddish, and there was a line of thinking that if you're the Cavs and you're really enamored with R.J. Barrett, you could somehow talk the Knicks into swapping positions, and the Cavs could jump up and take R.J. at three, and Reddish would be available at five. Um, are we sure John Morant is going to the Grizzlies at number two? Because I feel like that's just been uh, talked about as if it it's feels as much. Way. It just it seems yeah, like that is as much a done deal as uh, uh, Zion at one. Yeah, I remember, yeah, I don't remember if it was Shams or Woj came out right after and said that they have you know they have you know zeroed in on him and he met with. He met with Memphis and New York and gave some, you know, I'd be super excited to join Memphis quote, which is normally signed for they promised him they're taking him and he's he's doing the PR thing. So I I don't know if it's for sure, but it seems like it's gone that way. I didn't see the actual tweet that did Woj use some of his language, like when he was quote unquote, not tipping picks last year during the draft. (laughs) Because that was one of my favorite things I've ever seen on Twitter. How like the the they are zero again on player so and so. Cleveland is tantalized by uh, player X and uh, on and I on. I forgot and about on. that, and that was amazing. Oh that my god! So <laughs> no, no, I'm I'm not going to tip picks. Don't worry, I'm not going to say who they're drafting. No, they're highly interested. <laughs> I remember oh. somebody on Twitter said that they sat behind Woj at a game once, and he like typed up a tweet that was some breaking news, you know, some, some Woj bomb that nobody else had and like set his phone down for a few minutes and then picked it back up later and tweeted it. Like, like he's just got this information that like he's not even like freaking out to get out. Like he just has not even he, remotely concerned that someone else will have it first. Right. It was something like ridiculous like that. It was, it was just the greatest like Woj thing ever. Oh yeah. There's, there was a great story on him when he was still working for Yahoo and it kind of made me surprised that he ended up going to work for ESPN because he had this like mindset of it was like basically he was Yahoo. And I know they brought on uh, Shams in later years, but I mean, it was basically like him versus an army at ESPN and how personally he took it and how like one time uh, he chose to sleep in and not get up at five 30 in the morning or something like that. And somebody else broke news at six o'clock in the morning. And he just like never forgave himself for it. Like it's, it's wild. Like that guy, it's, it's borderline like an illness, but um, yeah, it's, uh, it's something else. So um, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I'm interested with, with the Cavs because it feels like between the, the teams that are in front of them, because like I feel like the Lakers are a real wild card in this because I feel like for them moving up into the top four, is it for them having a better chance to get a better player in the draft or is it for them a better asset Great. that they can flip? And I, I feel like depending on what they do with that, it could really impact what the Cavs end up doing at five. 
and the Knicks at three too. Yeah, same like, deal. It's hard, yeah, it's hard to project because either one of those could be Anthony Davis tomorrow and change the entire draft board. And and if the Lakers can't get AD, do they do they trade for somebody else or do they even draft somebody? It's hard to even imagine who they would want. You know, so they don't need to add more young guys to that team. So it's just it's kind of hard to to figure out what's going on in front of the Cavs. Right. The, the I, I think about the Lakers specifically because I feel like they're under in a special, uh, especially tight window because how many more years are you really going to have of LeBron as, you know, LeBron? Whereas, like, I mean, the Knicks have been, it feels like, irrelevant forever. And um, I know they've suddenly become this uh, intriguing entity for, you know, just because there's all these rumors around Kevin Durant and, Kyrie and you know possibly Anthony Davis and I I just feel like the Lakers are in this weird crossroads of like their front office is a complete dumpster fire you've got maybe a year or two left of of LeBron as we've known him and all these young guys and now a draft pick and some cap space and um, it's just a really odd situation out there. And I hadn't really thought about the Knicks much, but it's a good point. You know, if they get Kevin Durant and say Kyrie goes there, they're not going to want R.J. Barrett. They don't want a guy who needs the ball in his hand, a rookie, to go there and play with, you know, with those guys. So if they can't get AD, what do they do? Maybe they do want Cam Reddish. Maybe they do want to drop back and get more assets or drop back and get stuff and try to trade for somebody else on the market, like a Brad Beal or something. So that'll, it, it's all really interesting. It's really hard to project what, you know, the Knicks and Lakers are lottery teams that are probably going to be competing for championships next year. So it's hard to imagine either of them adding a rookie, and that adds a lot of just craziness to the top. Oh, thanks a lot, new lottery odds. <laughs> <laughs> Even if we were four, I would feel that. You know, it seems like people have kind of zeroed in on Jarrett Culver being the, the fourth best prospect. I don't know. That's the sense I get. I don't know what you guys, you know, what you guys think. It kind of feels that way and so even if we were at four and you felt like all right at least we can get him but at five you just have no idea who's going to be there i enjoyed watching culver in the tournament and i'll tell you one person who knows uh you know <laughs> has experienced uh, playing uh, against jerry culver would be uh john beeline because culver tore them up i think for like 22 and uh and and filled up the stat sheet uh, beyond that as well he had a great game against michigan in the tournament and that was that was uh, Beeline ended up being his last game in Michigan. So, um, you know, one game doesn't make you, I guess. But you know, it's a fun little subplot if that ends up uh, playing out that way. He seems like um, a really good Beeline guy. Like, I'm assuming that being a college coach and being the kind who doesn't recruit the top guys and gets the most out of out of guys, you know, Culver is. Uh, uh, you know, works hard, does everything well, isn't a superstar at any one thing. Like that seems like a perfect kind of fit with a coach like Beeline, and can handle the ball so that Sexton doesn't have to because he clearly doesn't have the best vision. Like that feels like the perfect Cavs pick if he's there to me. But and, I, don't, I don't know if he's going to be. Right, yeah, that's definitely a good point. And uh, you know, just to kind of bring it full circle, you know, as we talk about how hard it's going to be with these lottery odds to you know bank on. It's really impossible to bank on getting any kind of a high draft pick ever. Um, you know, I, I think it really kind of underscores the importance of having a coach who can develop those second and third tier guys. And, you know, I guess Beeline's track record at Michigan, 
hopefully will translate to doing the same thing in the NBA because I think that kind of a skill set from a coaching staff is going to become incredibly valuable here if these lottery odds are here to stay. Yeah, and hopefully he can, you know, coach up his coaching staff too so that if he does create a culture, if he can get the most out of his team, there's there's a succession plan because, as you said, that dude's old. <laughs> yeah, he's old. We're all old, aren't we? <laughs> That's true. We're all washed up. Who am I to talk? <laughs> all right. Uh, feels like a good stopping point. What do you guys say? Sounds good. All right. Yep. Well, Nam, thanks for joining us, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, always. That was great. All right. We are on Apple Podcasts. We are on Google Podcasts. We're on Stitcher and the TuneIn app. And, of course, you can stream us on waitingfornextyear.com. Nam, you write for uh, good old WFNY. Uh, you got anything cooking? I, uh, I can see anything. I have, I have been terrible at getting something actually up to publish lately. I'm going to try to do some some Cavs off-season stuff and just looking at the different angles that they can take. Well, the barn door is wide open for Cavs content in this town, so <laughs> by all means, dive right in. Um, we are also on Facebook.com slash The Nail Podcast, and our uh, Twitter account is at The Nail Podcast. Our thanks once again to Jeff Domina for joining us. We're going to be back next week. Already got a guest lined up for that one. Should be good. Uh, in the meantime, for Travis Julie, I am Tom Valentino. Spin the nail in the coffin. We'll talk to you again soon. I'm Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast.